This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. I didn't come from a political family. Uh, no one in my family had ever been involved in politics in any way whatsoever. He represented Iowa in Washington for 40 years. Have I had things said about me in the media or something that I didn't think was right? Yeah, that's true. But it didn't have the kind of universal outlet that social media has now. But he is hardly retired. What we wanted to do with this institute was to develop policy that was based upon data, research, and also citizen engagement, where you engage citizens. A conversation with Senator Tom Harkin, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. At times on this program, we talk at length with individuals who have had an impact on our state. Sometimes they are journalists, sometimes university presidents, and sometimes public officials who were in office for generations. Today is one of those conversations. Tom Harkin retired from the U.S. Senate after serving five terms. Prior to that, he served five terms in the U.S. House. I caught up with him in Des Moines on March 21st as his Harkin Institute for Public Policy and Citizen Engagement was hosting a day-long wellness symposium on the campus of Drake University. There was something that drew you to the concept of public service, of running for office in, I believe it was 1974, for Congress. Uh, What was it then that led you to think this is something that you would either be interested in then or devote your life to? Well, that's interesting, you know, because I didn't come from a political family. Uh, No one in my family had ever been involved in politics in any way whatsoever. I started my life out as to be an engineer, as my brothers were. I think what really got me moving in in public affairs, public policy direction was the the war in Vietnam. Uh, I lost a lot of friends in Vietnam. I was reading about it, and I thought, this was just a total mistake. For what? And the more I delved into it, the more it just became uh, an insane war. And so that I started out uh, running for office as uh, against the Vietnam War. And that's what got me, I think, first moving in, in that direction. And then I think probably close on the heels of that, or maybe at the same time, uh, I remembered my own life and growing up with a father who only had a sixth grade education, my mother was an immigrant, and just thinking about all the things that form lives and, 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 and how, how much you're affected by your surroundings, your environment, your education, um, your communities, and what, what could you do to make sure that we had that kind of a um, healthy, well-being community for other generations. I think probably those two kind of melded together at some point. Do you think people go into public service, elective office, two separate things, but theoretically they're together, Mm -hmm. do they go into it for the same reasons now or for the right reasons as opposed to when you began your career? Well, I don't know. I suppose that varies across the board um, on individuals. I, uh, I hope, I'd like to think that most people who go into public service or, or elective office are doing it for the best of reasons. 
and that is to, you know, help to make a, a better future for, for America, a more peaceful world. So I, again, I, I guess maybe I'm, I hope that's the main reasons people do that. I know a lot of young people who have worked for me in the past uh, in my, in my uh, Senate office, my House office, who went on to careers in public service, maybe not elective office, uh, but uh, things like uh, the AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps, or they went on into public health. A lot of them got into public health uh, matters, um, uh, even in agriculture. Uh, so a lot of them decided that, that, that they wanted to be in a, in a public policy, uh, public advocate uh, type of a life role rather than just going out to make a lot of money. <laughs> well, and I asked the question the way I did because there's no getting around the fact that we have had contentious political eras in the past. It seems that this is, and maybe it's a matter of since we're living in it, we think it is different or worse, but... Do you think that the climate for actively helping change the lives of Americans as a member of Congress, is the climate there to allow it to happen in the way that it may have during your time on Capitol Hill? Well, the short answer is no. And like you say, sometimes, you know, you tend to think, well, when, in, in my past, it was the best of times. <laughs> I guess as we get older, we always think that, right? But I think objectively, anyone looking at it, uh, any historian looking at it now would say that we have kind of stepped into a new dimension of politics in America, uh, unlike anything I've ever seen or read about. And I think I read a good deal of history. Um, we've never just never had anything like this. I, the whole, the whole social media uh, imprint now in American culture, and how that works, and what people believe, and how they tend to only now read that which they innately agree with. Mm -hmm. Well, in the past, you read a newspaper. Sometimes you agreed with it. Sometimes you didn't. Now you only read the things you agree with, mm -hmm. and that tends to just reinforce any kind of... Um, well, it's your predisposition, your worldview. Yeah, yes, and if you're prone to, to racism or bigotry or class consciousness, that tends to get just reinforced mm -hmm. through social media. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of, of course, a lot's been written about this. We're being sorted into different camps in America, mm -hmm. but we don't really kind of talk to each other. Is that the sort of thing that may drive good people away? Could. I think so. I think it makes it much more difficult to, to run for office now. But don't forget the influx of money, too, and the, the impact that big money has now on campaigns. It's just gotten out of hand. Um, with Citizens United, that Supreme Court case, money always had a big role to play in politics, obviously. Mm -hmm. but. There was also countervailing things that would balance off the money. Those countervailing things kind of gone by the wayside now. Mm -hmm. So you're right, with, with social media now, I mean, you can just, someone could post on, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook <laughs> uh, <laughs> something about you that may not be true but as it goes around and around for a few days or a few weeks, everybody believes it. And how 
How do you overcome it? There's this old saying that a lie circles the globe 10 times before the truth laces up its boots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, social media has encouraged that. You put yourself out there and someone could say something totally baseless about you and people believe it. And then it's hard to kind of wedge out that, that belief. Have I had things said about me in the media or something that I didn't think was right? Yeah, that's true. But it didn't have the kind of universal mm -hmm. outlet that social media has now. A few people might read it. And I probably had a chance to correct it or counter it at some point. Well, it had filters also. A lot of filters. Mm -hmm. You're right. I forgot about that. Well, we had people like you. <laughs> we had the filters. We had the, the, the people on radio and newspapers. And tele we had those filters. That, just don't anymore. More with Senator Harkin in a moment, but first, the thoughts of University of Northern Iowa political science professor Christopher Larimer. He noted that Harkin would appropriately be remembered as the driving force behind the Americans with Disabilities Act, but also remembered because of a unique time in Iowa politics. He was part of the Senate's odd couple with Senator Grassley. I, and I don't think you can you can decouple those two because for a lot of people looking at Iowa, it was Grassley and Harkin, right? And for a number of years, uh, the National Journal, which does vote rankings, would have Grassley and Harkin as the two most, you know, opposed senators within a single state in terms of their vote record. And yet they were able to work together on a lot of issues in terms of, uh, you know, agriculture, alternative forms of energy within Iowa. And so I don't think you can separate Harkin's legacy from from Senator Grassley. And, and, and in a way, that's a good thing, right? Because it, it showed that you had two senators who had very different ideologies, but they were able to work together on some issues. Other issues, they were, they were very much apart. But I think that's an important part of thinking about Senator Harkin is for a lot of Iowans, it was Harkin and Grassley for a long time. And that also speaks to the political culture of Iowa in terms of thinking about Iowa as a swing state, Iowa as a state that could go Democrat or Republican, um, I think Harkin and Grassley are, are, are part of that, sort of part of that legacy. And the fact that so many Iowans voted for both of them, exactly. even though they were from the opposite parties, and you yeah. know that because of the vote totals that were run up, you don't get 70 plus percent in right. a general election unless a lot of people on the opposite side voted for you. And I've always found it interesting that, in essence, they could be opposed to each other on a variety of issues. Mm -hmm. But when it came to things that directly impacted Iowa or agriculture, they were of a like mind mm -hmm. and did not let the political parameters get in the way. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why I say I think he, his legacy in part speaks to the, the political culture of Iowa, because you think, as you mentioned, with voters, right? Voters who would vote for Chuck Grassley and vote for Tom Harkin two years apart. Two people who, again, whose vote rankings are very, very, very different. Um, but it suggests that in Iowa, at least for a period of time, it was not just party line voting, right? And that's all that we hear about today with, with partisan gridlock, with, you know, Democratic voters not liking Republican voters and vice versa with Republican voters not liking Democratic voters. In this case, you had Democrats and Republican voters voting for the same people which I don't think we can say happens a lot today, particularly at the federal level, as partisan as things are. And it makes me wonder, and in one respect, I don't know that you will see that kind of voting again, where one state has the internal check and balance. Right. But by the same token, as the fringes of each party move further 
to the extremes and the muddy middle gets larger, well, I suppose you could see that because people who are centrists don't see it as being inconsistent. They just see it as voting for the person and not the party. Right. And, and I think that's one of the that's one of the areas where we're sort of right in the middle of the research on it, because, as you said, for a long time, political scientists would say that, you know, it's about five to maybe eight percent of the population that's truly independent, that doesn't lean one way or the other. And, and that's an important distinction because leaners tend to vote like partisans. Right. If you say you lean one way or the other, chances are you pretty much vote along party lines. I think what we're waiting to see is, you know, with as much partisan conflict as there is right now, with as much disgust as there is right now, are we really seeing an increase in the in the number of true independents within the population? I don't think we know, uh, know just yet. But I think again, you know, with with Grassley and Harkin, that was that was always the fascinating thing is that you could have voters who would vote both ways, vote for the person, or even vote based on the policy, because political scientists will say there's no sense, you really don't have, you don't have rational voters out there, right? You don't have people that evaluate uh, candidates based on a cost-benefit analysis, looking at policy preferences. That For a lot of voters, that really just doesn't happen. But if you look at Grassley and Harkin, they were doing something beyond just voting for, for political party, right? They were evaluating the person. They may have been evaluating policy. What were they doing for the state of Iowa in terms of agri- agriculture and other issues? Christopher Larimer, University of Northern Iowa political scientist. Coming up, more with Senator Harkin about what he's doing now and what advice he'd give others who were interested in public service. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from the Iowa Insurance Division's Iowa Fraud Fighters Program. This statewide initiative educates Iowans on how to double check before they invest and shield their savings from scammers. Thousands of Iowans have attended fraud fighter forums across the state to learn about new scams circulating in their area and how to stay a step ahead of fraudsters. Learn how to fight fraud and why it is important to report scams at iowafraudfighters.gov. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. More now of my extended conversation with former U.S. Senator Tom Harkin. We spoke in Des Moines on March 21st of this year. Why is it important for there to be a Harkin Institute and symposiums and get-togethers like you have here at Drake University? What we wanted to do with this institute was to, as the name implies, an institute on public policy and citizen engagement. The idea being to have a nonpartisan uh, institute that could develop policy uh, and um, for information for policymakers that was based upon data, research, um, um, consultations, things like that, and also citizen engagement, where you engage citizens in meaningful, uh, informed intellectual discussions about 
what we're doing, where we're going, what should the policy be. And that's two ways. It's one way to inform the citizenry, but it's the other way for the citizenry to have their input in a way that is, it doesn't, is non-political in terms of Republican, Democrat, independent, whatever. Uh, and is, so it's, it's, it's non-political, but also at a kind of a, a higher level, uh, a, a level of, of, uh, of intellectual pursuit. When we talked one other time a few years ago on the phone, you suggested that you might be a little busier now in supposed retirement, if that were even possible. What are the things that keep you engaged and active yourself in the post-Senate, post-House era of your life? Well, uh, the Institute, of course. And then secondly, um, one part of this Institute, as you know, has to do with disability issues. Uh, so we started two years ago we had the first international conference on employment of people with disabilities. And I've kind of narrowed my focus down to that. I, I, do I get involved with broader aspects of disability policy? Of course, but I've tried to focus on employment. And so we had the second one last November in Washington. We'll have the third one this year. We had now over 40 countries uh, uh, represented. We had, I think, close to 400 people. We have now partnered with the Ford Foundation, the World Bank, Microsoft, Toyota, a whole bunch of Hy-Vee here in Iowa. Uh, has been a great supporter of this. Uh, bringing people together, mostly private sector. That's where the jobs are. Get private sector in to talk about employing people with disabilities. Not in a, quote, disability job. Mm-hmm but in a regular job. Not a token sort of effort at all. Yeah, no tokenism, nothing. same pay, same benefits as anybody else. What do you have to do? What accommodations do you have to make? Uh, what's been the experience of some companies that are very successful who have done this? Well, it's interesting. They, they found that when they hired a person with a disability and they trained someone with a disability to perform a job that for which they were qualified. I have never asked a private sector employer to hire a person with a disability for a job for which that person was not qualified. Mm-hmm. You gotta be qualified. Mm-hmm. But again, with new technologies that we have today and um, some of the new supportive services, uh, a person with a disability, uh, if they're qualified, minor changes in the workplace, minor changes in a schedule, companies have found that a person with a disability is their best employee. What is the factor that contributes to that? Is it gratitude? Is it uh, appreciation for opportunity or what? A lot of things. Focus. My brother, I had an older brother who was disabled. He was deaf. He was hired. He was taught in school only to be a baker. He didn't want to be a baker. But then later on, a person hired him through the goodness of his heart to work in a factory on a plant. And he gave him this job. And he told his foreman, you know, give Harkin, give Frank Harkin a job here, see how he does. And they were making jet engine nozzles. And so he had to run a machine that was, uh, had to drill these fine little holes in these little jet engine nozzles, and it had to be just perfectly done and all that kind of stuff. Owner of this plant later told me, so I went back oh, about a month or so later, and I asked the foreman how Harkin was doing. He said, oh, this guy's fantastic. He never makes a mistake. He gets more, more done than anybody else on the line. Well, they were astounded by this. 
here's what they found out, he told me. He said, this is a very noisy line, a lot of bells and clanging and people shouting and buzzing and machines running. He said, didn't bother Frank, he couldn't hear a damn thing. He just kept right on his job, focused on his job, got everything done. And so many people with disabilities, once they get that, they're able to focus. Let me ask you finally, as you meet young people, whether it's at Drake University, a number of people on the Institute staff I would consider to be young people, and they say to you, I want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. How can I do that? Maybe I don't want to be the next Tom Harkin, but how can I make a difference? What do you say to them? What do you like to do? What motivates you? What sort of inside you says, ah, I'd like to do this? I mean, it could be a variety of different things. Um, and then kind of let that be your guiding principle. And a difference doesn't have to be monumental. I, some, of the, some of the best people I've ever met in my life were people who made a difference in a small community. They did something in their neighborhood that just made the neighborhood better. Or they did it in their church, or they did it in their, you see what I'm saying? It, it doesn't have to be something huge. Mm-hmm. Just think about making a change in, in an area that you really care a lot about. It could be recreation. Mm-hmm. Volunteer for things. Uh, get involved with the things, uh, neighborhood, local. Take time out to, to volunteer for things. Uh, sit down and just write out, here are the things that I really like to do. Here's what motivates me. And pick one or two and, and push those out. Get, get those out in front and kind of start following those. And maybe what you thought you might like to do, you really don't like to do. And maybe you can try something else, but at least start there. huh? Senator, thanks for the time. Thank you, more importantly, for your service. Well, you're nice to say that, and I appreciate the interview very much. Uh, and I can't believe we first met 34 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that last comment was a reflection of the fact that I first interviewed then-Congressman Tom Harkin 34 years ago in 1984 as he made his first run for the U.S. Senate and upset an incumbent Republican despite the Reagan re-election landslide. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can connect with us online, iowawatch.org. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.